0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. You can find more about the standing committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity.
1: And I am Andrew. Subbing for the very busy, ever aloft in the skies, Yvette.
0: And I'm Elisa. The ABA
2: Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers.
1: The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed about the hottest topics in national security law today.
0: Any legal podcast has disclaimers, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms.
2: If you want to get real information through this podcast, make sure to check out the links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBard.org forward slash NAT Security and in the notes to this podcast.
1: So if you like facts and law instead of spin, sit tight because we've got it. Today, we are joined by Paul Rosenzweig who many of you know from his appearances on Steptoe & Johnson's Cyber Law podcast, NPR, Lawfare, and as one of the leading authorities on cybersecurity and the law in the media generally.
2: Paul is the founder of Red Branch Consulting and the former and first Deputy Secretary of Policy for the Department of Homeland Security, And he currently holds over 80 positions at the same time, including as a senior advisor for the Chertoff Group uh, and as a center-right think tank, the R Street Institute, where he is a senior fellow. And we will link the rest of his bio in the notes, along with his social media profiles and recent posts on cyber topics. Paul, it's awesome to have you here at last. You're not easy to catch with 80
0: jobs.
3: It's great to be here. I wish it were 80 different income streams, but (laughs) there you go.
0: Our topic today is the disappearing cyber czar and the consequences to national security. So, Paul, could you tell us what happened around the middle of May when John Bolton became national security advisor to President Trump, specifically in regards to the cyber czar position?
3: Well, as you all remember, uh, John Bolton replaced H.R. McMaster as the national security advisor to President Trump about Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, maybe at this point, um, and he undertook a, a wholesale reorganization of the National Security Council. Uh, the one piece of that that we're here to talk about today is that he announced the elimination of the position of White House Cybersecurity Coordinator, the so-called Cyber Czar, a position that had been held by Rob Joyce. When uh, this prompted, you know, a number of technology industry folks to ask the president to actually reconsider and some democrats in congress have even drafted a bill that would uh create the cybersecurity czar as a statutory position on the nsc and make it permanent
2: and i think it was 51 of them as of today but let's give a little history on this cyber czar position uh this was not the spawn of the original national security act of 1947 where did it come from
3: well, the Obama administration created the role of national cybersecurity coordinator, cyber czar, in two thousand nine, uh, naming as the first such czar uh, former Bush administration cyber advisor and coordinator and U.S. Uh, CERT uh, chief security strategist, a man named Howard Schmidt, to the job. Um, that position, in turn, was based upon groundwork that had been laid by the Bush administration for that kind of role in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, They had first, for example, named Richard Clark as a special advisor to the president for cybersecurity. So uh, Clark's role as the first cyber czar was actually as a function of his uh, position within the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. The SAR job, if you will, shifted to the Department of Homeland Security with the formation of the National Cybersecurity Center and Rod Beckstrom, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, served as its first director. But while DHS took over oversight of cybersecurity for the civilian agencies, there was really still no single point of contact, no uh, for guidance, for coordinating policy, for coordinating security operations across all of the government networks. Uh, Beckstrom resigned from the job uh, because of a lack of funding, and he says because of a lack of cooperation from the NSA. That in turn led to President Obama's decision to review the entire corpus of America's cybersecurity strategy—a cyber review that happened in the first 100 days of the Obama administration—and as I said, resulted in the creation of this coordinator position at the NSC level. Uh, where Howard Schmidt was the first, and now it appears Rob Joyce will be the last.
2: <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about what the functionality of that uh, that office would be, because the state of coordination and legal uh, responsibilities in cyber spaces, balkanized, fragmented, it's it's all over the place, is it not?
3: It is, um, and in fact, that's true not just of government cybersecurity, but of cybersecurity generally. Uh, Bruce Schneer, the the famous. A uh, cybersecurity analyst gave a talk just the other day at SciCon, which he, in which he said, basically, everything today is a computer. A refrigerator is a computer that cools things. A car is a computer that drives, and your phone is a computer that takes messages. So cybersecurity is really the security of everything, because everything that we have and own today is a computer. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to so that. My shower doesn't have a computer in it yet. But leaving that aside, almost everything that's out there today is based on enabled by network connectivity. And so cybersecurity is the security of virtually everything in the world, at least in America today. And the same is true uh, within the U.S. government. Uh, we have uh, the Department of Defense, where Cyber Command, is responsible for the protection of the dot-mil domain and the security of the government's military networks. Department of Homeland Security, in turn, has the rest of the civilian agencies. Department of Homeland Security is responsible for the security of interior, agriculture, uh, the IRS. In the end, OPM. So when OPM loses stuff, it's DHS's fault, really. Not that that happened. Not that that would have ever happened to anybody. Uh, Meanwhile... DHS is also the locus for all of the coordination and connection between the federal government and the state and local governments and the private sector. The NPPD, the National Protection... Jesus, I forget what the acronym is. Uh, Programs and Protector Division? Programs and Protector Division. We live in an acronym world, and if it's longer than three acronyms, that's one too many for me. (laughs) NPPD is four. They're responsible for coordinating all of the government's efforts to protect itself with the private sector's efforts to protect itself. They're responsible, for example, for sharing threat and vulnerability information with the private sector, trying to push out uh, data about what types of threats are, are looming on the horizon so that the banking industry or the transportation industry or the electric industry can take necessary precautions. They're also responsible for some of the threat analysis, not just pushing out information, but telling, helping private sector know what it means know whose threats are are real whose threats are not so real layered on top of all of that uh we have um the state systems right every state we've got 50 state cybersecurity uh systems involved plus the district of columbia and the six uh, or, or seven uh territories, right? And they have their own issues and problems. The state is responsible basically for all of the information, the security of all the information that it collects on all of their citizens. And that implicates everything from your driver's license and your state income taxes to the state election systems, which are, of course, the locus of how we cast ballots in the United States. It's not a federal system. It's a state and local system. And also 50 different such systems with 50 different sorts of vulnerabilities. In short, there's no mandated federal coordination that's going on, no law that says um, we must have a centralized national cybersecurity advisor. We must have a coordinated approach to the
1: state and local. So, so sorry for interjecting, but uh, it sounds like we're moving into standards <coughs> discussion, and it sounds like what you're telling us is that in cybersecurity or cyberspace and the law... Uh, standards might be wonderful, uh, almost so wonderful that many people have their very own. That's, that's indeed the case. The one standard that is
3: slowly becoming a national standard was promulgated uh, under President Obama by NIST, the uh, National Institute for Science and Technology. And it's basically a baseline standard of cybersecurity best practices, if you will. And if I were to characterize them, I would say that about half of them are process standards and half of them are technical standards, which is to say that about half of them are about how to organize your enterprise to do good cybersecurity things. And that involves rule sets that are independent of your technical capabilities. An example, if you're running an enterprise today and you don't know how many devices are connected to the network, you can't protect the network because your network is only as weak as strong as the weakest link in the network and so if everybody if you've got to bring your own device policy and everybody's bringing their own cell phones in and hooking up to your network using a wi-fi uh, connection the the least secure of those devices is the mo is the maximum security that you have so so one of the process standards is know your devices one of the technical standards is consider pushing down to all devices that are connected to your network, um, certain malware or intrusion detection systems, or consider isolating devices that don't have those systems from other parts of your network. So one is a count what you got, and the other one is a, once you've counted it, implement protections against it. So looking at all of this, you know, uh, just uh, last year, Angus King, who was the... Uh, the senator from Maine, the independent from Maine, and Jim Langford, who's a pretty conservative Republican, essentially lit into the U.S. government and said, "You've got no strategy. You've got no doctrine. You don't know who advises the president. You don't know who's responsible for what. This is a well word I can't say on on a podcast that's going to be broadcast <laughs> nationally, but a bad word. We
1: could we could all use a a, a Bluetooth connected uh, showerhead." Right is uh, to, uh, the direction I think I heard you going. Yeah. Right, let me
2: uh, let me just interject something here really quickly. There is there is some legal framework that we didn't mention, which is that the Cyber Information Sharing Act of twenty fifteen. You know, which was appended, um, and it, you know, obviously passed. I think with fairly overwhelming support, it was sort of appended, if I recall correctly, to the the appropriations uh, bill. Um, but it did pass. And it, again, just like the NIST, like what you're talking about, the voluntary information sharing standards, and, and put sort of DHS and the Individual Information Sharing and Analysis Centers, or ISACs, in charge of sort of sector-specific push-out. Um, and to the extent that, uh, I mean, that obviously is an intent to reach all, you know, private industry, you're still going to have gaps. And to your point about the weakest link and these voluntary standards, um, As a statistical matter, the overwhelming majority of breaches come from employees themselves who are using a device who do something, click on a link, uh, and then suddenly malware deposits on a system. That's
3: exactly right. There's a... a pretty infamous or famous hacker named Kevin Mitnick for many years was a criminal on the dark side he finally got caught was arrested did his time in jail and he's now a white hat hacker who sells his same skills back and tells you how to protect yourself but he has a a pretty solid aphorism for this he said there's no patch for human stupidity which is essentially the 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 aphorism that your employees your untrained employees or your non-malicious but trying to be helpful employees are really your weakest link.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, and <laughs> I think that ties in with actually the business guru, Peter Drucker from Harvard University, who used to say that the uh, the only element of business management that is never in short supply is human fallibility and stupidity. Yeah, there you um, go. We, so- we do seem to be the world champions. Uh, I'm paraphrasing Bill Evanina, the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Uh, but, but Americans and American businesses... In general, we do seem to be the world champions of clicking on suspicious links. Uh, we just can't stop ourselves from that left mouse button. No, we can't. Um,
3: there have been some wonderful social media stuff. Um, men are obviously most susceptible. I hate to say this to to <laughs> pornography or pictures of, of of actresses. Women, interestingly enough, are most susceptible to appeals for charity in the aftermath, say, of, a, of the Haiti disaster. Mm. You know, fake fake. Charities spring up and and they get a disproportionate click through by uh, women sure. rather than men. Since men are basically is, uh, not not nice guys. So Don't the, give the, away, what so. you're
2: saying is women are um, are are good at feeling sorry for somebody, but they they. They actually don't respond to that email that says, I saw you at the party last week. Yeah. Because they presume it's false. All right, well.
1: So, so <laughs> I mean, I think we're touching on an interesting area. that probably is its whole own uh, other podcast on threat tactics and the evolution of social engineering from these broad-based uh, kind of appeals to click on a link that come in a mass email to highly targeted spear phishing, or what, what hackers sometimes refer to as whaling, whaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Finding a very detailed targeted email that looks like it's from somebody that you know uh, with an embedded link that will uh, download something nasty. So the more the hackers are focusing on getting nastier and sneaking into networks, um, I think we are clearly observing some trends toward um, increased scope of damage. After individual attacks and perhaps an increasing public awareness in the attacks, so I was wondering, Paul, if you might tell us a little bit about um, kind of the state of the threat environment. Is there a moving wave or an increasing awareness uh, on recent events that would impact uh, national security law in cyberspace?
3: There's there's so much going on that uh, it's almost impossible. To do it justice in a short podcast, let's pick just uh, two or three mm. uh, short incidents. The city of Atlanta was shut down for more than a week by a ransomware attack uh, that they refused to pay off that essentially locked up every single uh, uh One of their cyber-facing customer service, citizen service uh, functionalities couldn't pay taxes, couldn't pay parking tickets, couldn't couldn't get your your deed recorded uh, in the uh, in the recorder's office. You name it, it was shut down. Uh, that was a uh, pretty significant, both in terms of of actual costs, but more importantly in terms of the disruption to you know, the kind of essentials of basic life in in Atlanta. Transfer from that. To uh, you know, this is a little bit old, but we mentioned it already the hack of o- OPM, uh, which uh, essentially stole the security files of every person in America. Who had a security clearance, which
1: I think probably includes everybody in this room, maybe not you, Nicole. I think it may also have included people who had applied for security clearance. Indeed, which might include a very high percentage of listeners to this very podcast. Indeed, and and it wasn't just data about your your
3: past, or which is bad enough because it gives a, the Chinese a huge uh opportunity to engage in uh in in recruitment and stuff but it was also your fingerprints which were on file your digitized fingerprints so the big move in in security today is to move from passwords to biometric identifiers but if you're listening to this podcast and you've ever given your your fingerprints to the u.s government don't do it because the chinese have your fingerprints uh, uh, yeah, I mean, okay, it's probably still better than than, a, than a, a bad password like the name of your dog, but but really, uh, the 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 trend in that. So that's number two, and then just to add number three, the North Korean government, as recently as today, uh, was disclosed to have unleashed a series of network attacks on various infrastructure facilities in the United States. They call this one "Hidden Cobra." I haven't even had time to understand. Uh, what it does yet. So I can't really tell you about but it's May 31st. So DHS announced, uh, published an alert about it yesterday. So it's an
1: ongoing set of problems uh, for which we essentially don't have very good solutions. So I I know you just talked a lot about kind of digital threats and digital information, but we've been hearing a lot about the types of cyber threats that can result in physical damage or physical infrastructure. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to kind of explain for some of our listeners that aren't familiar with things like SCADA systems or uh, machine operating systems, could you walk them through what some of those threats are uh, in the real world? Sure. Uh, That's a
3: great question, and it it is actually an important uh, one because... The threats to the physical infrastructure are really what's driving policymakers in Washington crazy. You lose my data, you lose my data. But, you know, nobody dies from that and, and all that gets killed are a bunch of baby electrons. You infiltrate a SCADA system, you know, and all of a sudden you're really at a point where you're doing physical damage. So SCADA stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition systems. These are the computers that run almost all of the manufacturing systems in America and indeed around the world.
2: And dams uh, and, and yeah,
3: manu- any anything that involves a mechanical process. Um, think of SCADA systems as really stupid computers your laptop is brilliant. It can do Excel, it can do uh, web surfing, it can do anything. SCADA systems are basically idiots given a few simple tasks. Uh, if you're running, for example, an elevator, it's go up, go down, and reports uh, set condition current conditions to the engineer when he presses the tell me what's happening button. It turns out, that all of these SCADA systems, or many of them, are highly vulnerable. That we can infect them with malware that would, for example, make a generator run itself to death by speeding up so fast that it over-revs and burns out the generator system. So all of a sudden, an entire County is without so, electricity, so I need to
1: ask. So, for simplify, I used to be in the Marines. I know some of our listeners also uh, Marines. So, um, my question is: I mean, is, in a, is a safe analogy for what you're talking about with this SCADA threat something akin to in in the Disney movie Fantasia, where Mickey Mouse gets the sorcerer's uh, spell book, but he inadvertently makes way too many brooms to carry the water buckets. I mean, so what you're saying is that somebody could hack into a SCADA system and actually make a generator spin itself to death?
3: Yes, or hack into the SCADA system of a dam and open up the sluices, or hack into uh, the elevator that brought us all up here to to this wonderful recording studio we're in and make it stop. Uh, or much more creatively, and something that we've actually seen demonstrated in the real world, hack into the to, to the system that operates a car and cause the brakes to fail or the accelerator to go. Full speed, straightforward at 100 miles an hour. These are uh, realistic threats. To be fair, and to be, you know, brutally honest, none of them have really been realized that much in America. We haven't seen anything like that. But they aren't mythical. The Russians, we're pretty sure, used a SCADA attack to shut down the Ukrainian electric grid for three days back in December. I think I want to say 2016, mm-hmm. which was a way of trying to force the Ukraine to be more accommodating to their demands vis-a-vis uh, Crimea. And we have seen unactivated uh, uh, SCADA infection codes in, for example, a dam in upstate New York that mm. we, we trace back to Iran. We actually think they put it in the wrong dam. Um, they were looking for a different dam of the same name that was much larger. The one they picked in upstate New York was this teeny little thing that dammed a small creek and would have hurt nobody. Sounds like
1: somebody was damn lucky.
3: Ooh,
1: oh, but wow,
2: ouch! But the, the bottom line is, this could. It, it, I mean, it could cause loss of life. A hospital doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, an area gets flooded at a time of day when people aren't awake to respond to it uh, mm-hmm. as quickly. That kind of thing. But let's go back. Um, Oh, I also find it interesting that this all occurred, this removal of the cyber, elimination of the position of CyberZar, if in fact that is sort of the real place where we are right now, occurred in the same week when press accounts revealed that the president was using um, an unsecure phone. Uh, so assuming for a minute that this was just a miscalculation by uh, John Bolton, um, he is interested in protecting national security, and at some point people will get to him, or, or maybe he's already thought of the fact that this needs to be resurrected in some form or fashion at the NSC, why wouldn't that be enough? If it was positioned somewhere within the National Security Council or stuck into DHS... Why does that fail to protect the national cyber security?
3: Well, nothing fails as in completely fails. But if it's given as added duty to, say, a new uh, to a deputy NSA director, um, then it's just added duty. It's it's right there next to space policy and refugee policy and uh, our policy towards Iran. Uh, And we all live in Washington. We all know that the larger your, your area of responsibility, the less particular attention you give to any single incident. Um, so that would reflect a, a determination, a mistaken one in my judgment, that cybersecurity doesn't require a unique special focused set of, of problems and attention. You can't give it to DHS either, because as we've seen, Repeatedly in the history of America, you know one agency does not command another agency. DHS cannot do a coordination that 's going to bring NSA to the table, bring DoD to the table, much less force the Department of Commerce to do anything. Uh, the only person who can actually make that all happen is an empowered national security advisor or an empowered coordinator within the bounds of the national security advisor who can. Uh, if if you will, make sure that everybody's equities are taken into account and, and allow uh, for the development of policy that takes all of those po- equities into account. Nobody's going to listen to the uh, DHS cyber coordinator. That's why Rod Beckstrom quit.
1: Well, I mean, I appreciate yeah, your input on on some of the things that certainly could be done from the executive branch uh, side of the equation. But I'm wondering for some of our listeners, what what can lawyers do within organizations, uh, where frequently they're they're heard as advisors, and also are there any? Um, kind of specific legal remedies or new laws that could go on the books to help us be more secure from these types of cyber threats?
3: Well, that's two different questions and they're both really good questions. With respect to lawyers as advisors and what they should do, it just so happens that the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security has a couple of books out there for you. Uh, One's a cybersecurity handbook and one's a cybersecurity playbook that are essentially uh, walkthroughs for lawyers who are put in that position to try and educate them on what the cyber threat is and then give them the tools to talk to their clients as well as their partners about things that they need to do. Most of this is is all about awareness. A lot of what happens is simply because even still today, even with all the things we've been talking about, there just isn't enough awareness in corporate boardrooms, in, in, in law firm uh, executive committees about these sorts of threats. And so... Go buy those two books. That's my that's my recommendation there. I know I'm probably not supposed to say that, am I?
1: No, I think I think you're uh, uh, perfectly allowed to say that. In fact, I'll make a quick plug also for National Security Law in the News. Yes. Uh, the editor-in-chief being Paul Rosenzweig of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And there you go. We're grateful for that and also for the expertise of those that did the Cyber Law Playbook uh, and also the uh, Cyber Security, security handbook. handbook.
3: As for law... And what we can as a country be doing. I'm not a big fan of law. I think most of this is about practice and and performance. Because it's not about risk elimination. This is about risk reduction. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly uh, about doing the right thing. But here are a few things that I think are worth thinking about. We need more cybersecurity experts, not lawyers like us, but people who actually know what they're doing in the computer room. And that means a greater focus on STEM education. And it's way too late to start that in college. We need to develop programs that are big STEM education, in particular, cybersecurity education programs in high school, junior high school, uh, we can start teaching cyber hygiene and, and, you know, don't click on bad links to kids in kindergarten and first grade in the same way we teach them not to throw away Pepsi cans, but rather to recycle. We need to make it easier for the U.S. government to hire qualified people. Right now, there are lots of qualified hackers who would be real beneficial to us, but whose personal backgrounds don't fit the traditional model of either the Marines or the Department of Justice but rather have some some issues that ought to be excusable when they when they bring us enough value. Uh the third thing uh we could do is really push the government push the executive to make a greater exercise of deterrence. One of the big problems is is that all the problems are overseas and they're all under the umbrella of Russia or China or whatever and we have not done at all a good job of developing a, a good international strategy for using our other tools, um, you know, information, law, diplomacy, uh, economics, financial to bring those people to the table. We did a, Obama did a very good job with China and that singular success ought to be a model for how we approach a lot of the rest of the country. I don't sense a lot of appetite for that in the NSA, right? Uh, national security, NSC right now. And then finally, we ought to talk about Rules of of liability. I mean, I know that that's lawyers asking for things that are about lawyers. But too much of what we do is generated by the rush to profit without any thought about effects. Almost all of the uh, new Internet of Things are created without any security at all. And that's a huge legacy problem with billions of devices that are, are vulnerable. And that's just really not acceptable
2: and the run-up to 5g uh it's going to be a bigger deal that people need to think about so stepping back and you know for just a moment and going up to the very meta level so you've mentioned stem education we defer to local to states on education uh so unless they have the money or they commit stem is 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 not a national program as it is in every other developed nation certainly in china and russia do we have a culture problem and if so how do we address that
3: uh, yes, I, I think we do. I mean, in truth, cyber is not existential in the same way that say nuclear th- the nuclear threat was, and that is the type of nature of the threat that actually transforms culture. The problem with the cyber threat is that it 's too insidious it 's too easy not to see and that means that people don't aren't willing to invest money in it aren 't willing to invest time in it aren't willing to invest uh, intellectual capital in it but the the truth of the matter is is that our America as a nation has a cyber glass jaw. Our cyber dependency is large and it's growing. And, uh, the failure to think of it in those kind of transformative terms, to think of what, uh, uh the federal government role should be, what the private sector's obligations should be, is, uh, is just an error that's gonna, uh, you know, redound to our, our great harm sometime in the near future, I fear.
2: All right. Well, our guest today was Paul Rosenspike. Paul, I'm really glad that you came in. We hope you'll
0: come back soon. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again in a week for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how
2: much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right
0: now,
1: And you want to be the lawyer who looks out at cyber threats and figures out the actual laws and policies that will help protect us.
0: Or perhaps you take your expert legal knowledge and become a private national security lawyer at the first trillion-dollar high-tech company instead. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the
2: American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope to see you at our next event.
1: Physically we mean, not digitally.
2: That's right. Social networking
0: isn't really networking. Please show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at NatSec. From all of us here, thank
2: you for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.